0: Turn with me, please, to Matthew's Gospel this evening, Matthew chapter 22. Continue our study in this great book, Matthew chapter 22. For our opening reading, we'll read verses 1 through 14. Matthew chapter 22. We'll read verses 1 through 14. We'll look at this parable tonight as well as the next section, the question of paying the tax to Caesar. For our opening reading, just verses 1 through 14. So let us hear God's word. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Amen. we'll end our reading there. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your mercies towards us. Again, the power, the beauty of your word, the way Christ is revealed to us through it. And the way it strengthens our faith and shapes us into the people we need to be. So help us tonight to become more like the image of God. The image of God that you are restoring through Christ in this body, through your body throughout the world. May tonight be another step in that process that God might be praised and that we might live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew 21 and 22 contain cycles of challenge and response. Jesus performs actions and speaks words which challenge the authority and the actions of Israel's religious leaders. In response, Israel's religious leaders challenge Jesus' authority. By what authority are you doing th- these things, they ask. And Jesus responds with three parables challenging them, challenging them to live out their identity as the people of God. And we looked at the last, or excuse me, the first two of those last week, and we'll look at the third, the final one, beginning tonight. It's the one we read in the opening uh, reading. And then after the parables, the religious leaders challenge Jesus once again. So various groups come to him. We'll see some Pharisees with Herodians tonight. Then when we pick this up next time, the Sadducees ask him a question. And finally, the Pharisees ask him a question again. And each challenge raises a current issue in theology or ethics. A live issue, a hot-button issue, we might say, where they want to know where Jesus stood. And Jesus answers them, and then the chapter ends with him giving them one more challenge in response. So tonight, let's begin with looking at the parable that begins Matthew 22, and then we'll look at this first response that Jesus makes to their challenge. And again, the whole chapter, each event is this cycle of challenge and response. So first, let's look at the parable of the wedding feast. Now again, this is the third in a group of three, but each parable has the same message. It contrasts two groups of people on the one hand you have those who were historically privileged as god's people and those who have found themselves on the other hand surprisingly included in god's people matches really well what we're seeing in romans 9 10 and 11 in the morning so the traditional people of god and then those who have suddenly found themselves surprisingly included and interestingly those who are being included are those who were despised and excluded by the traditional group. Well, why such a reversal? Well, the reason for the reversal is Israel's failure to fulfill their covenant obligations. Again, they haven't lived out their identity as the people of God. And and we could think of that on on a moral dimension, obeying God's commandments, they've been breakers of their own laws. We could also look at that from a vocational dimension. Again, Israel called to be the light of the world. But the light has turned inward, and they are no longer fulfilling that role that God gave them. You see both in the scriptures. Romans 2 is a good example of where both uh, dimensions are emphasized by Paul. And so as one commentator puts it, All three parables speak of a radical and unexpected reversal of roles, and raise far-reaching and troubling reflections about how the Israel of Jesus' day relates to the people of God in the future. What's Israel going to look like going forward? Well, Jesus has given us a hint, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And so that idea is developed here in this parable. So beginning here uh, with verse 1 of chapter 22, Jesus says, excuse me, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like. So once again, we've got a parable, and it's going to tell us what God's kingdom is like. How does this reign, this rain that's right here, how does it manifest itself? What does the provision of salvation look like? And Jesus is going to compare it to a wedding banquet. Now, our weddings in modern times tend to go a little quicker. Marriage celebrations in the ancient world and other parts of our world today, they can last several days. But the focus in this particular parable is on the initial meal. And as we come to verses 3 and 4, we see that there's been some kind of previous invitation sent out. Notice verse 3 says, He sent His servants to those who had been invited. So it seems that there's multiple stages in getting people to this wedding feast there's some kind of invitation and maybe we could assume there was an rsvp people had said yes i will come and be a part of that feast and then where the parable picks up the servants are going out to those invited and saying okay now's the time let's gather for the feast and it's not too hard to see who the different groups in the parable are are. The invited, well, that's Israel. That's Israel in particular, uh, represented by her religious leaders. They're those who throughout their long history have been invited to the feast. They're a privileged group. Jesus calls them the sons of the kingdom earlier in Matthew. They're the people you would expect to participate in the feast. That when the last days show up and God appears and actually begins this feast, they would be the people that would attend because they were previously invited. They were prepared. And just from a very practical standpoint, you can see this idea of expecting the right response. Verse 4, tell those invited, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. So, obviously, based on who he expected to come, he prepared the food and then killed those animals. And he's going to be in a rather inconvenient spot if people don't show up and eat this food. We can relate, can't we, because of our circumstances today. But what do we find happening? Well, in verses 5 through 6, we see that those who were previously invited paid no attention. Or another way to translate that is they just didn't care and that's a major breach of protocol i mean it's assumed they accepted a previous invitation but now they refuse to come they're going back on their word they're like that second son in the previous previous parable who said yeah i'll go and they didn't go or he's like the tenant farmers in a a parable even further back being tenant farmers implied They would pay their rent or they would give the landlord his portion of the crop. They don't give it. And when you read this and say, how could they refuse to do that? That's the point. It's blatantly bad on purpose to capture our attention. There is really no reason that God's people should not have responded when Jesus came. And again, particularly the religious leaders. Many are following Jesus. But the official leadership is not. They refuse to come. And it's not just apathy. Again, they are abusing the messengers we see here in verse 6. Seizing, mistreating, and even killing them. Which again echoes the Old Testament history. The way the prophets were treated when God sent them to his people. Well, how does the head of the banquet respond? Well, in verse 7, the king is enraged. And so he sends his army and he destroys those murderers and burns their city. Now again, I want you to notice, we've got a few details that once again, they don't make sense. Where does the king send his army? To their city. Why would he invite people not from his own city? All the guests for his wedding banquet come from a different city. But that detail is supposed to jump out and not make sense because what is God doing? He's summoning his people... They refuse to come? Well, it's like they're not even his people anymore. They might as well be in a different city, their city. It's kind of like the church of Laodicea there in Revelation. Jesus is on the outside looking in. He's knocking at the door. He can't get into his own church. And so the parables calls it their city on purpose to warn us that those who refuse to come can be excluded from God's people. And not only can they be excluded, then there's this warning of coming destruction. He sends his army and destroys that city. And yes, that would echo a warning to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that a judgment is coming. Jesus will speak to this in detail in Matthew chapter 24. And while it may jump out as this to say, wow, that's kind of harsh, like that Jerusalem would be judged because of disobedience, this is exactly what happened at the time of the exile. This is what God has been saying to all of his creation. It's not that they're Jews and Jews lose Jerusalem, there's a focus on Jewishness. There's humans, when they won't worship their creator and make a mess of his creation, forfeit the right to his blessing and his care and his protection. And so Jesus is warning them, any generation, any group of people, church or Israel, when you don't listen to their God, and when they put their own interests first, whatever those interests may be, there is a warning that there will be exclusion and replacement. And so we see exclusion there in verse 7, and in verses 8 through 10, there is replacement. The king summons a new group of attendees. And notice verse 10 says they go out in the streets, they gather all the people they can find, the bad as well as the good. It's not just the good people that are invited, the bad people are invited. And God says, you come in, you be a part of my feast. Because those who are invited refuse to come. Again, just like in some of the previous parables, it's the lowest social groups. It's those who are previously excluded. It's those who are looked down upon, prostitutes and tax collectors. They get to come in first. And why do they get to come in first? Well, one, God's grace. But two, they don't need two invitations. They don't need to be told over and over again. Please come. The invitation goes out, and they show up. And God includes them in his kingdom. But before we end the parable, notice here there's a surprising twist in verses 11 through 12. So the first group is excluded. We get a new group, and yet even somebody from the new group is excluded. You've got this person in verses 11 and 12 who is not wearing wedding clothes. And as we know from the end of the the parable he will be removed from the wedding. Well, okay, why doesn't he have on his wedding clothes? Well, you would, this is not a commentary on how we should dress at church or anywhere else. The point is this, when the summons went out, there is a proper response. Go home, change into the appropriate wedding clothes, which would be a clean white garment. In other words, there may be a new invitation, but there are still entrance requirements. And those requirements have to be met. And I think it's tempting to read this parable and be like, man, this host is really strict and stingy. I mean, he excludes one group, he lets a new one in, but he's already throwing people out of the second group. Here's a different way to look at it. Not that he's vindictive, he's impartial. He says, look, here are the entrance requirements. Same requirements for for both groups. And what are the requirements? Matthew's made it clear throughout his whole gospel. Doing the will of God. That God's people are known not by being included in a group, but by doing the will of God. And that begins with faith and is a lifetime of obedience by grace. He's not vindictive, he's impartial. And those who are traditionally favored, that doesn't get them in. And those who are lately graciously included can't get in if they still don't meet the entrance requirements. The same requirements... For everybody. And again, what are those uh, requirements? Bearing the fruit. That's what the wedding clothes symbolize. Doing God's will. Believing in Him. And following Him. So what we see there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who did all the great works. But God says, I didn't know you. We'll see it in the next, you uh, know, a few chapters later. 25. Wise and foolish bridesmaids. Both are invited. Only the wise get into The feast. Wheat and weeds grow together, but in the end there is a separation. And so, what happens to this man? We're told in verse 13, he's tied up hand and foot and thrown outside. He's rejected, he's not allowed to be a part of the feast. And so, Jesus concludes with verse 14 For many are invited, but few are chosen. And, and that may feel like an odd twist. Like, okay, Jesus gives all this teaching on making the right response, and he concludes with a statement on predestination. Well, you just have to be chosen. I think here is one of those instances where chosen probably isn't speaking to the issue of predestination. Remember, he's speaking to Israel. This has very strong Israel overtones. And in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. So what is he saying? If you want to be a part of my feast... You have to be a part of my chosen people. And that lines up with what? Who are the chosen people of God? Those who bear fruit. So I think it's a way of Jesus saying, the invitation goes out to many, but only the chosen are included. That is those who actually fulfill their vocation as the people of God. Those who bear fruit as the people of God. And so show themselves to be my people. Membership doesn't matter. Doing the will of God does. And so when we say, okay, what's the application for us? It's a challenge for us and an invitation. It's a challenge and a gracious invitation. Be manic about doing God's will. Just make that your heart's desire. And as you do God's will, constantly examine and re-examine the scriptures. To make sure you are doing God's will. Now, not in an anxious sense where you're always wondering, oh, am I doing right or am I doing my wrong? But always wanting to bring my obedience back to Scripture. That I won't fall into a rut or just make my assumptions. That I will always bring it back to Scripture. Again, what does it even need to be reformed? That we are always subject to the word of God. And so the scriptures have the right to question us and examine us from top to bottom in our beliefs and our assumptions and our practices and grow us. We don't want to be a static people. You don't want to get five years down the road from tonight and say, I'm kind of the same person I was. You know, it's good to be able to look back and say, oh, I've grown here. I've, I've developed here. God has done these things for me. So be manic about doing the will of God. And God promises to bring you down that path. So that concludes the parable. Now let's read these next verses, and then tonight we will also look at this statement about paying the tax to Caesar. And in the application, we'll see both go together wonderfully. So beginning at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, And he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now again, just as we saw three parables, now we begin a section of three exchanges where these different religious groups pose questions to Jesus. And again, each of these is a live issue. These aren't just like, hey, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Which, by the way, I heard recently, that question was never actually asked. It was used to describe the theological discussions of a previous generation and saying, that's all they cared about was stuff like that. But it was never actually a live issue. That's free. So, so these are live issues. And these represent an opportunity to step on a landmine. So you can just fill in your head what issues are before us today that if somebody were to ask you about, you would want to think twice before you answer. And here's the other thing about these questions. It's different groups coming to Jesus. So depending on how you answer one group, you might offend the other. So how is the Lord going to navigate this tricky situation? Well, the first question concerns payment of the imperial tax now let me give you the background here not going to get bogged down in long history but let me just paint this picture again think back to your Old Testament the exile into Babylon that meant a loss of independence for Israel that they had enjoyed since the exodus and the conquest kind of get through the time of the judges got the good kings and they have a time of hundreds of years of independence that's lost when they go into exile They're sent home 70 years later. But back home, they're still harassed by hostile surrounding nations. A few hundred years after that, there's violent persecution by the Greeks. And the Greeks are just battling another rival factor. But Israel got caught in the crossfire. And as their land was subdued, there was violent persecution. But Israel resisted and eventually was able to liberate their land. And while this takes place between the Old and New Testaments, historical records tell us they were able to liberate so much land they pushed their borders back to where it was during Solomon's time. So they made a really good reclamation effort. But with the rise of Rome, and again, tensions between tensions within Israel, Rome battling with other areas of the empire, caught in the crossfire once again, and Rome assumes rule over Israel. And in AD 6, they imposed direct rule. And with the imposition of direct rule came a poll tax. Now, patriotic Jews resisted them, uh, resisted this tax. They hated it. And sometime before Jesus, one named Judas, not the Judas with Jesus, but another Judas, maybe his namesake, maybe he was named after him, he led a serious revolt said, no more of this poll tax stuff. No more of this Rome stuff. We're going to have a revolution. Now, that was put down, but it inspired a group known as the Zealots. You may remember there was a Zealot that was one of the 12 disciples. After Jesus' time, the Zealots would start the War for Independence in AD 66, which resulted in the destruction of the Temple in AD 70. And later there would be a, there, there was a series of rebellions, but the most significant one came in 135, which would lead to Israel being expelled from their land, and they didn't get to enjoy being in that land with self-rule again until I believe 1948. So this is a big deal. This poll tax. This inspires all sorts of revolutionary movements. And again, you ask, hey, what was this tax? It was just a flat tax on every Jewish adult. And not only was it taking money out of their pockets, it was also what it symbolized. It symbolized Rome's rule over the Jews. It was a living reminder that said, we are in charge of you. But according to the Torah, according to the law, according to the scriptures, God is in charge of Israel. So the question is, should Jews do something that God might forbid? If we pay this poll tax, that says yes rome is in charge and maybe god wouldn't want us to do that so they come to jesus with this question i mean he's from galilee judas the revolutionary he was from galilee galileans weren't subject to the tax so maybe jesus can give us kind of an, an objective answer but here's the problem if he resists the tax he says yeah don't don't go pay that tax now they can go to the romans and say hey jesus is inciting revolution but if he says pay the tax he will anger the current judean audience so kind of like jesus put them on a dilemma with the authority of john the baptist well now they've got jesus on the horns of a dilemma and what will he do well again we have the question there in verse 17 tell us what is your opinion is it right To pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, it's interesting, by the way, it is a Pharisee, according to verse 15, that puts this question to him. And again, when we look at the historical records, this Judas that led the revolt, his main partner was a Pharisee. So this is one of their issues that they really care about. And as you can tell from the background I've painted, this question grabs ethics this question grabs theology. This question grabs politics all at once. And despite the fact that they come with all this nice language, you know, we know from the text, they are really trying to trap Jesus, for he calls them hypocrites in verse 18. So how does Jesus answer this question? Well, this is something about Jesus that we can all learn from, but it's definitely the wisdom of Our Savior, Jesus tends not to answer questions in a way which falls into the trap. Rather, he answers the question in a way that subverts the very foundation of the issue. In other words, he just goes right to the foundational idea, the assumptions and the presumptions, and he says, Let me get at this idea and let me amplify this big idea. And as I give you this big idea, that will take us, it'll answer our question, but it will take us beyond the initial question in that particular application. So the first thing Jesus does in verse 19 is he says, Show me one of these coins. Now again, these coins tended to be a, a scandal. Pious Jews objected to these coins. They considered them not only what we've already said about Rome's domination, But they even considered the coins themselves idolatrous. On the front was a picture of Caesar, and it described him as the son of a God. So it was viewed as violating the first commandment, and in some Jewish interpretations, the second commandment as well. The back of the coin carried the title Pontifex Maximus, which is high priest. So it says Caesar is a son of God and high priest now these folks object to these coins but follow me here jesus says show me one (sighs) if they don't like these coins where do they get one to show jesus and keep in mind where are they they're in the temple so they're asking jesus hey should we pay this poll tax and somebody in that crowd has one of the coins on their person so i think that's why jesus first calls them Hypocrites! I mean, they present the tax as this great burden and this great objection, but somebody in the crowd is actually carrying the objectionable coin. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, you're already making use of the money. You might as well, maybe this is implied, pay the tax. We might say it's like Christians. We all drive on the same roads. We all use the same fire department and libraries and what have you. Like, There's not really a place to say, oh, this whole system is corrupt. When everybody is taking part of it. Jesus is saying, look, the coin you've got, there are certain benefits that you've received from that government. And you're acknowledging that by using the coin. So just ask yourself first, is it right to even ask the question? And then secondly, and this is the largest idea, Jesus challenges the big presupposition behind their question. Their question assumes... There is a fundamental, essential incompatibility between loyalty to God and loyalty to the governing authority. And Jesus, in his answer, basically says that fundamental antagonism is misconceived. You can be loyal to the government that God puts over you, And you can be loyal to your God at the same time. Thus, Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And this was picked up by Peter in his first letter. He writes in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, Jesus is saying, you, you can do that. You can be a dutiful citizen, and you can be a loyal servant of God. And friends, here what I, here's what I would graciously remind us of. The events of 2019 and the events of 2020 did not change that. We can still live as God's people, as good citizens, and servants of the living God. You see, by challenging the state, and they had all the right reasons, they're corrupt, they're too powerful, they're oppressing us. The zealots thought they were giving God his due. God wants us to do this. But Jesus challenges that. And I'm challenged by the fact that Jesus in his interactions with these people, that they come with their questions and they come with their concerns. And Jesus isn't dismissive, But he doesn't seem overly concerned with their political struggle. What he is concerned about is that they will give God his due. It's kind of like the parable of the previous chapter. You've got the tenant farmers and they are to give the the landlord his share of the crop at the harvest time. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give God's what is God's. Why? I think he's concerned that their concern over political tyranny will cause them to lose sight of their most important obligation. And that is to bear fruit as the people of God. What is our most important obligation as Christians? To bear fruit as the people of God. What is our most important obligation as a church? To bear fruit as the people of God. And to not let concern over political tyranny let us lose sight of our fundamental obligation. And friends, I think this is probably the most pressing issue facing the evangelical church today. So there is concern about sexuality. There is the age-old concern over liberal or progressive theology. I personally think this is the most pressing issue facing the evangelical church today. Or the one that we are the most likely to be tempted by. So what is the solution? It's the same solution as the previous parable, that we would be manic about doing God's will, and that we would constantly examine and re-examine the scriptures to make sure we're doing it. And friends, this is good news. This is encouraging news. Why? Because this is where Jesus blesses. And this is where Jesus goes. And Jesus says, when you give to God, what is God's, then I will go with you. So let's pray and give thanks to God and ask for grace to follow our Savior. Father in heaven, thank you again for your many mercies towards us. And thank you for the word of God which is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who invites us into his kingdom and promises to give us what we need, who promises to clothe us and to feed us and to give us grace for each day. So go with us, we pray. Bless your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.